We could get into the biology of the plant if, if you want to, and I can tell you about some other things like growth accelerators and the chemicals that are found in it now that just weren't before. But that's not the story. The story is the potency. Like when you had single digit potency, so THC, which is part of the plant that gets you high, when that was making up two, three, four, five, even eight, nine percent of the plant, you didn't have these issues or, or they were few and far between. The problem now is that the products that are being sold and they're being sold because they are more addictive are 70, 80, 90, 99.9% .9 pure THC. It's unnatural and it's changed the whole conversation. So the answer to that is just potency. Too damn strong. I'm Doug Bobst, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to our episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. And today's guest, and to close out the cannabis series, is Ben Court. Ben has been sober since 1996 and has been part of the recovery movement in almost every way imaginable, from a recipient to a provider to a spokesperson. Ben joined the field professionally in 2007, working inside of nonprofits, treatment programs, and consulting to athletics and organized labor. Highlighted in his book, Weed Inc., The Truth About the Pot Lobby, THC, and the Commercial Marijuana Industry, and his TED Talk, Surprising Truths About Legalizing Cannabis, Ben has remained active in the discussion around marijuana, assisting several states' efforts to hold back big marijuana and always advocating for recovery. Ben has garnered national recognition for his widely adopted curriculum on ethical treatment and practices and for his reputation as being pro-logic and recovery-oriented rather than anti-anything. Ben is utilized by the likes of the NFL and NCAA to determine appropriate treatment for their athletes, coaches, and their families, as well as develop recovery-oriented policies. Today on the show, we discuss why Ben has been advocating against the legalization of marijuana, why parents should be taking marijuana seriously, why more people are going to rehab for marijuana addiction, steps parents can take if their kid is struggling with marijuana addiction, what Ben would do if he was in charge of changing things, why marijuana is destroying people's lives, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Ben Court to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Doug. I appreciate you having me, man. I'm excited to chat with you. And one of the main reasons I'm excited to bring you on as part of this series is that you've become a strong advocate um, against the legalization of, of marijuana and really trying to be somebody on the forefront to spread awareness around why it might not necessarily be a, a great idea. What inspired you to take such a strong position against it? Man, I, from the very beginning, um, what really inspired me was actually reading the proposed legislation in Colorado. Uh, I, I had a friend who encouraged me to take a look at it. And I, I think I was like everybody in our generation, not assume we're around the same age. We're, we're like, you know, I owned the Cypress Hill shirt that said legalize it. You know, like I didn't care. Um and when I read the legislation on the recommendation of this friend, I saw like, th this wasn't about decrim. This was about creating a commercial industry. And 
I, I opposed it just because of what commercial industries have done with potentially addictive substances in the past. And um, the longer I've been in it, I guess it was 2012, the longer I've been in it and the more I keep learning, the the more I realize and also see firsthand how detrimental it is to folks um, with substance use disorder, people in recovery and trying to live different. And what do you think some of the biggest problems are with like, like legalizing it from a perspective of, of people who are struggling with substance use or addiction or kids, like what often gets overlooked? Well, I think that the biggest thing, I mean, if you want to, if you want to get a tiny bit philosophical with it is there's a, there's a social contract that exists that says like, if something's legal, somebody is making sure that it's safe. And um, those safeguards just don't exist when it comes to this industry. There's all sorts of regulations in place, but there's absolutely nobody enforcing them. So the, the biggest issue that I've got was this communication that we made to the public that like, hey, we got this, everything's cool, this substance is safe, when in reality, absolutely nobody could say that for certain. How has marijuana changed over the years? Because we were talking before we recorded, like some of the stuff that's happening now specifically with kids just wasn't a thing when you and I were growing up and we were using marijuana. Like it was, it was pretty much like... Yeah, it made you more chill. You could get addicted to it. It was psychologically addictive, but it wasn't really destroying people's lives in the way that it can today. So how has how has the the plant and everything, you know, changed over the last decade or so? Oh man, it wasn't wrecking lives. Like the lives it was wrecking had to do with stupid antiquated um judicial stuff. It, it was, you know, minimum sentencing guidelines and stuff like this where where people would end up sitting for long periods of time for having a little bit of weed or selling a little bit of weed. Those are the only lives it was damaging. Like it's, it's simply potency, man. You, you can, we, we could get into the biology of the plant if, if you want to. And I can tell you about some other things like growth accelerators and the chemicals that are found in it now that just weren't before. But that's not the story. The story is the potency. Like when you had single digit potency, so THC, which is the part of the plant that gets you high, when that was making up two, three, four, five, even eight, nine percent of the plant, you didn't have these issues or, or they were few and far between. And the problem now is that the products that are being sold and they're being sold because they are more addictive are... 70, 80, 90, 99.9% .9 pure THC. It's, it's unnatural and it, it, it's changed the whole conversation. So the answer to that is just potency. Too damn strong. What are the most popular ways to consume marijuana and THC now compared to like years ago when it was just popular to smoke a joint, rip bong hits, like that was the thing. Like how has that changed and how has that also impacted how it you know changes our brain chemistry? So I, I work inside of treatment and I'll see several kids, young people, we don't work with adolescent, uh, um, juveniles, but I'll see several young people uh, every year who have never smoked the plant. They've never smoked flour. It's all concentrate. This younger generation has grown up vaping concentrated THC. And it, it, essentially what you do, it, okay, so you, you, you take the plant and then you run some sort of binding agent through it is the easiest way to do it. 
um, that binds to the THC. And then what you've got on the back end is that binding agent, usually butane, propane, isopropothal, and THC. And then you get as much of the binding agent out as you can to leave you with as much THC as you can. And so the way it's changed, man, is this is what they're initiating on. Like I, I talked to young folks who are, have a cannabis use disorder or trying to get help for it, who've never smoked a joint. Which, like, I mean, that that to me is, oh man, we ruined weed. Like it used to be this thing we could puff, puff, give, and like have a little bit of fun and put a movie in, and 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 now it's this ridiculously potent stuff that's giving these kids psychotic issues. And then how does that present itself? Like when you're seeing some of these kids that are having psychological issues and, and psychotic breaks when it comes to excessive cannabis use, marijuana use specifically. Um, like, what does that look like? Psychosis is kind of like a, a grab all word. And if you want to use the pejorative for it, we, we would just say crazy. So somebody who is in a state of psychosis or has had a psychotic break where it's become permanent, um, their reality differs from everybody else's. And that can look like anything from extreme paranoia to um, suicidal thoughts, uh, ideations, all the way up through seeing and hearing things that nobody else is seeing and hearing. So it doesn't really matter how somebody gets to psychosis. It all manifests the same. It, it is a detachment from reality. And you can get there two ways. You can get there organically, like you just got genes that lead you in that direction, or you can get there chemically. Man, until the last couple of years, like all of the chemically induced psychosis that anybody in my world saw was amphetamines. It was cocaine and it was meth. I mean, you think of like Scarface going crazy, right? And you think about all the stuff we know about meth and it, it was an amphetamine induced psychosis. And I'll bet you we see 10 cases of THC induced psychosis for every one amphetamine induced psychosis right now. It's the same result, different path to get there. And the main culprit is the high concentration of THC in, in the marijuana today? Absolutely. And we can say that without a doubt with sound science from not only this country, but multiple others behind us. And how has the percentage of people, so you've been in the, you're, you mentioned you're in the treatment industry. I know you've been in the game for, for a while. How has the percentage of people coming into treatment for marijuana changed over the years? Because I know it was like super rare back in the day. Yeah, like you never you never saw THC as primary, <laughs> never. And I'll bet you thirty percent of our census right now is there for THC as primary. Like it's you you can't overstate how much it's changed. And the big problem with it is like treatment providers don't know how to to work with it because so many of us are from the old school where we're still using our our experience, you know. And you're like, oh, you just quit weed and you won't eat quite as well for the next couple of days. And, you know, SpongeBob won't be funny anymore. And it's not these kids reality. So we got a big lag right now in the medical treatment community and how to handle this stuff. So are most of the people that are coming through the door, at least in your experience and in what you've seen for marijuana addiction or marijuana substance related issues, is it because they've had some sort of psychosis or had some sort of psychological issue because of it? Or is it because they just can't stop smoking or in ingesting or however they're consuming it on a daily basis? 
I don't know if I could break down a percentage on that, but it's absolutely both. It's the folks who are like, man, I didn't think this was an issue until I tried to stop. And now I see what an issue it is. Typically, when someone's had a detachment from reality, they're not saying, oh, could you please help me? Because they're detached from reality, but it's family members. Um, so a lot of those folks come in through interventions, through family members who get through to them in a moment of clarity and say, hey, man, we got to we got to get you straightened out. And then what's the process like specifically with somebody who has had some sort of psychosis? Like I know a lot of times that would involve, I'm, I'm assuming bringing in some like intense like mental health care and professionals that are skilled in that set. Like how does somebody begin to like come out of that and, and heal from that in a way that's healthy? If you think about like that hierarchy of needs when it comes to treating these things, most of treatment is done talking. So that's all frontal lobe stuff. Like the person has to be engaged enough to do what you and I are doing right now, to, to reason. And so if someone's detached from reality, you can't expect them to be in a place of reason. So considering the hierarchy of needs in that treatment episode, you've got to get them stable first. So that looks like kind of waiting out the detox, which is, we can talk about the physical detox later if you want, like it shouldn't be a thing, but it's a thing. And then treating the underlying symptoms of the mental health disorder. So it's almost always getting them on appropriate meds. Hopefully those are short-term. You can get them on short-term meds to balance them. And then once we found stability, once we can sit down and actually have a conversation with them where our realities are the same, then you can start to, to treat in more traditional ways. But I mean, it is acute mental health that you deal with first. And that acute mental health has to be dealt with by people, doctors, prescribers, people who can bring the appropriate meds on board. You, you can't do that with talk therapy. What have you found is the like main reason that a lot of these kids specifically are, are using and abusing marijuana? Because it's legal. Because it's not a thing. Because, I, I mean... Man, I could give you a list. I could read it straight off of the Drug Policy Alliance's website. This like has never killed anybody. It's not addictive. It's natural. Like all of this stuff that these kids have been raised on. Like like they don't even question that it could be an issue because to do so would be like questioning the 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 fabric of what they've been told from go. Like I meet 16-year-old kids who who, who want to teach me about weed because they've been reading high times for five years. The problem is that we made everybody think it's benign and harmless. And, and it's, it's this whole movement inside of our country to destigmatize this stuff. And I'll, I'll say something that's going to sound a little controversial, and I don't care if people think it is, but I, it, it, it isn't. It shouldn't be. Stigma has a place in the world. Things that hurt you should be stigmatized, like um, poor eating, like um, like like un unhealthy drug use, things like this. But it doesn't mean that you got to shame a person. It doesn't mean you've got to judge them. It doesn't mean you've got to take their inventory is the language I would use. But but there should absolutely be like this overarching, hey man, are you sure you want to do that? Because we know that's hurting you, like smoking. And uh, that just doesn't exist with weed for these kids. For them, there's, there is no downside to it. And I, I would argue and have argued in a, in a book I wrote that that was extremely intentional. And it was done by the people who are currently profiting off of it. And so I know 
based on the conversation so far and by your work, you're against like the commercialization of marijuana. Some might say, well, does this mean that you just want people who are addicted to, to marijuana to, to suffer and to go to jail and things like that? Like, what are your thoughts on like decriminalization of marijuana and how does that differ from what you're against? Oh yeah, no, that's totally my bag. Lock them all up. <laughs> oh man, like I'm an addict. Um, that, that it's the silliest thing in the world when I hear that from people. Like, if there were decent treatment to be had inside of the judicial system, it would be a different thing. But but there just isn't. So I am all for and have given money to causes that advocate for the decriminalization of marijuana, where where we remove penalties. And, and where I personally feel with it, and I piss off a lot of my more conservative friends with it, is I would keep penalties for distribution because that's a, that's a different deal than using. But I would – no, decrim of cannabis would be a fantastic thing. And I think had we done that, which was what most of America thought we were doing when we voted on it, we wouldn't be in this fix because it wasn't about taking away penalties. It was about creating a commercial industry. It's never worked in this country, ever. We've never successfully managed an addictive substance with laws, like cigarettes, alcohol, all that business. And so let's just say that you were in charge of, of steering this ship and how we could start to change the trajectory and do better. What, kind of, what types of things would you start to implement? The last chapter of my book was called In a Perfect World, and I, I tried to do that. That ship sailed. Like there, there's no getting this genie back in the bottle. We're never going to go back to 15% THC. I'm almost done with the second one. It's these last two chapters that are killing me. And I laid out what, what I think we have to do. And I, I, I can tell you what I wish we could do. But like I said, man, the ship has sailed. What I think we have to do right now is have the federal government get involved in this. And to have real, meaningful regulation and enforcement taking place at the federal level. Because states simply are not equipped to regulate food and drugs. It's a federal function with the FDA. The, the differing laws and requirements that are state to state are making it so that nobody's ensuring that what people are using is as safe as it can be. Colorado hasn't tested a product for potency or purity. Colorado, the, the world's thought leaders on this, my home, we haven't tested a product for potency or purity in an independent laboratory since 2015. So you got this gigantic multi-billion dollar industry that nobody is making sure that, that they're selling things that are actually safe. And that they're maintaining some standards when it comes to potency. So number one, you figure out how much is enough. You, you set a potency cap. And then number two, you got to set up a federal function to ensure that everything's within the, the legal guidelines. And how do we then, I guess, on the other side of this, how do we, given the, the, all the negative health concerns that we've talked about as far as how, to, how it impacts kids specifically, um, and how addictive it can be with adults who are struggling with like a substance use disorder. Obviously, just telling kids and people not to do it just hasn't worked, right? So how do we then begin to, I guess, inspire people 
to not go down that rabbit hole, specifically when they're younger, given the fact that it does, you know, way more damage when, when kids are younger? It's such a gigantic question, man. I, I think at its, at its root is untreated mental health and trauma and, and simply lacking the the will as a nation to treat those things. I mean, like I, I can tell I, in retrospect now, I started using because, you know, I had a major depressive disorder and I'd, I'd had self-harm thoughts since I could remember thinking. And I, I, I grew up really impoverished. So it's not like we could go to the psychiatrist and get me meds or anything. So I self-medicated with street stuff. Um, what we really have got to figure out doing is addressing those core issues inside of this country, but I just don't see the political willpower to do it. I think what you and I can do is keep on speaking the truth and speaking it, I think, compassionately, but also giving people alternatives. Like I, I, sport is a big passion of mine as well. And I know it's yours, fitness and sport and, um, it's a lot harder to get high when you're in the gym. You know, it's a lot harder to get high when you got a game on Saturday. And so I think if there were some other things that people could be looking forward to and excited about, but um, so, so that's one promoting healthy. And, and the other one is that this pendulum will swing back. Like, like it always has at some point, the science and the stuff that you've been getting into and, and, and doing your research on that's going to become common knowledge. Unfortunately, it takes a long time for scientific fact to be accepted by the masses. But at some point, that is going to happen where people are going to be like, wow, holy crap, this isn't a benign substance. I, I just don't know how long that's going to take. Bringing this more micro, uh, I have a lot of parents who listen to my podcast, and I've spoken with countless parents over the years about kids and substance related issues and specifically with with marijuana and i've heard that you know some of these kids they might have friends that are on the same sports team and they're performing well they're playing well but they have an unhealthy relationship with something like marijuana and but they're on the team but they see their friends still being able to do it and starting and and having a starting role and being good and that sort of thing like how how should parents have conversations with their with their kids about stuff like this when they're in situations like this where back when we were growing up like we were always told well kids are going to experiment it's just part of growing up it's just part of and you don't want to like give them the forbidden fruit syndrome where you just completely like barricade them from anything and then they go off to college and it's like you know the open flow of stuff like what's your what's your advice on how they can have a healthy balance it's a great question it was so much easier when we were younger. Like you, you could, I mean, there wasn't going to be fentanyl in something that we took. There wasn't going to be car fentanyl line with whatever. Like we, we, I, I think the biggest thing maybe parents need to do is realize that um, we kind of ruined drugs for our kids. <laughs> like there's not the same experimental rite of passage stage that it, they, they just have different ramifications. So I, I think, and, and as a parent myself and somebody who's been trying to work through this from day one in Colorado, I speak openly and have always spoken very openly with my kids about this. The biggest thing that I challenge them to do 
was to not consume anything before adulthood. And adulthood not being 18, adulthood being full brain development, frontal lobe myelination sometime in the mid-20s. And I, th I think that takes away the forbidden fruit thing when you say it to kids. So I think parents can, can say it's not the devil's lettuce, but it's also not for kids in, in a way that isn't preachy, but we still got to stay firm with it. Like uh, the, the research would tell us that even if we don't think our kids are listening, they absolutely listen to us and they watch us. And so another thing parents might say is, well, it's not my kid. My kid would never do that. And then a lot of times, you know, behind closed doors, that's what they're doing. Do you know, is there, is there any research, like recent research or stuff that you've come across that shows like the percentage of kids in like middle school and high school that are using marijuana? Yeah, it's really based on geography. You have a hard time. Get, I mean, the monitoring the future would give us a... Um, a, a national average. I can't quote it off the top of my head, so I won't. But for, for example, in Colorado, like you're, I live in Boulder County. Your odds are about twice that you're going to use in middle school if you live in Boulder County than if you live in Colorado Springs. It's quite a bit more than it ever has been. And so while it's really important to acknowledge that most kids, the majority, over 50%, based on the, the numbers we see, are going to finish high school without using. It, it's still, I think it's foolish to assume, never my kid, man, you got no idea what they're doing behind your back. And if you could actually get into some of those apps that they got hidden on your phone, <laughs> yeah, they're running game on us, man. So we, talk, we talked a little bit about prevention with, with parents and being able to have open conversations and just talking to them in a way that, you know, encouraging them to not make decisions like getting high when they're, you know, kids and that they should also um, do it in a way where the kid doesn't feel like they're super restricted and explaining to them what they're doing and um, also being a great role model for the kids. But that doesn't always work. I mean, most of the time what happens is there's another conversation that happens and it's like, you need to stop doing this. It's your, your schoolwork is, is deteriorating. We're getting into more fights. We're getting into all these things. Like, how can a parent then have a healthy dialogue with their kid when they find out that they're doing something like this so that it moves them more towards the path of, of change and not resistance? I'll offer this advice with the caveat of when it's time to get a professional involved, get a professional involved. And unfortunately, those are few and far between when it comes to adolescence. But at some point, we got to know when we can't, it's past our pay grade. The advice that I would give folks is to make sure that every time you enter into these conversations, it is, it is first and foremost, not in a time of crisis. So after the car accident, after the report card that is a dramatic decline, after staying out all night, not checking in, you don't want to do that because that's when you're pissed. And when we're pissed, that's what the kids hear and see. They, we communicate our anger to them, not our concern. Biggest thing I think I can tell parents is have these conversations during the good times. Like sit down with them and tell them. You, you, you don't start it with, hey, Doug, you're really screwing up. You keep going this direction and you're going to be, you know, 
turning tricks by by next week on the street corner. Like you, you say, hey, Doug, I love you, man. And I've noticed that that you're not as engaged in your schoolwork, that the the sports isn't as important as it used to be, that like I think it's been like five days since you took a shower, man. Like, I love you and I'm concerned for you. Can we talk? That's the way you get a kid to talk. You don't come at them. You come alongside them. And then if a kid just doesn't open up and it's just like, I'm fine, I'm doing, I'm doing good, like whatever, which tends to happen, do you just let them get, you just give them some space to come back around to it? Or do you just take further action to get them to share what's going on? 10 years ago, I, I would have said, yeah, wait, don't, don't push it. I think the stakes are too high just to wait on it right now. Like, I, I think that this whole like this, this this gateway drug thing it's a silly word that we shouldn't use but what we can absolutely say is that when when somebody's using one substance this definitely includes tobacco um they're more likely to use other substances so if they're using cannabis or thc in any form they're more likely to interact with other ones and the stakes are just too high man. there's fentanyl and freaking everything like I like there's story after story and, and I have firsthand experience in my life of people who like are not addicts, but end up overdosing and, and dying because they come into contact with stuff. So like I said, man, like we, we kind of ruined drug experimentation for, for these kids. Like, no, nah, I, I think you got to act and you got to be careful that you don't let it go too far down that, that path. But <laughs> That's a fine line because at the same time, the, the majority of people who experiment will not develop a problem with it. it it's just that you've gone from that being about 90% of people who won't have a problem with it to uh, about 55% of people who won't have a problem with it. That's a tough one. Yeah. And a lot of times parents don't even know, right? I mean, kids are really good at hiding stuff. And a lot of times these kids are so busy with sports, social events, they're working, they're in school that they don't spend a lot of time at home with the parents. Are there any kind of guardrails that you could maybe recommend that parents could use with, with situations like this, given that it is a much different time than it was years ago so that parents couldn't have a better understanding on what's going on, or maybe there's some like symptoms that a kid might be showing that can show them that they're having, that, that, that something's going on. Um, so the first thing I'll, I'll tell you is um, don't overreact and also don't underestimate. A, a really close friend of mine whose son had a full psychotic break. And fortunately he's, he's great now. He's back sober, sponsors a ton of guys, great kid. Maybe he's got five years. He said at the beginning with him, when he started to show up, he said, man, I said the three most dangerous words in the English language. He said, it's just weed. And so I think as a, as a parent, I'm not trying to encourage overreacting and freaking out, but also take this seriously. And if you think there's use, address it. And one of the easiest ways is if their peer group is using, you can get a pretty good feel for it that way. I mean, the things that you look for as a parent are um, stories that don't line up. You're looking for any sort of lost time, um, deceptive behavior, things like that. You're looking for a peer group that uses um, changes in the peer group. I mean, it's an old one, but it holds true, like changes in, in physical appearance, the way people are dressing, 
certainly hygiene. Um, if you're noticing less care for hygiene, that's part of it. And that it's those times at the very beginning that you probably will have more luck if you jump in and say, I'm concerned, can we talk? It, it, it's the classic signs of substance abuse, uh, slipping grades, um, less interest in things that they used to be engaged in. Those are the big ones you want to watch for. Yeah. And it seems that it's much better to catch it early on and pay attention and for parents to educate themselves with proper resources and support and understand more with what's going on so that they can catch this thing towards the beginning. And they're not having to have these conversations when they're in some sort of crisis mode. And if they are, then obviously it's better to get a medical professional in, involved. What kind of resources would you recommend or support, like, you know, maybe a, some websites or something if parents want to learn more about some of the stuff that you've been sharing? So I know of um, several parent groups for kids who uh, are addicted to, to THC, to, to weed. And I think a search in your local area, I mean, out by you, there's a really active one in the greater DC area. And, and I know that there are multiple ones all around. I don't know if you, you, you've heard of Al-Anon, the support group for folks who um, have a loved one who's an alcoholic or addict. There's something called Maranon, a support group for folks who have a loved one who's, a, who's addicted to THC. So those are good resources. I think there's there's been a lot written on it. I would encourage uh, look at a, a program called Johnny's Ambassadors. It's a educational nonprofit um, started by a, a woman and her husband, whose son took his own life in a state of THC induced psychosis. There's Sam um, Smart Approaches to Marijuana is a great repository for information. There's uh, uh, some of the other ones are a little bit more on the extreme side. Those have really good info and, and usually a good place to start. There's the International Isaac, International Association of Cannabis something doctors. <laughs> you can find it easily enough. That's got a, a great library of research that somebody can start with. Those are the big ones that are coming to mind. And so just to be clear, I heard you say, earlier and i've heard you say like in your ted talk like your beef isn't with everybody in in marijuana your main concern is around the education about truth about thc and how it impacts kids and how it's so much different and that sort of thing correct 100 percent. i just want people to be able to make informed decisions without having big business pushing those decisions like like look man you know anybody who smokes cigarettes not anymore. I don't. I used to know much. <laughs> so, I'm a bad so, example. <laughs> I, I got friends who smoke cigarettes and they do so knowing that there's risk associated with it. And if they do that, knowing that there's risk, that's on them. They're grown up. They can figure that out. Like, and, and I don't need to be, I'm not their dad. I'm not telling them how to live and what to do, but they know there's a risk. And the problem that we've got with weed today is these young people, they, they don't know that there's a risk. Like, you've got to present both sides of this. And then if they choose to, when they're an adult, <laughs> well, thank God we live in a country where you can pick and choose what you feel like doing. <laughs> but the, the whole story is not being told. And I think like a lot of the problems that exist is you'll see 
kids see either from their peer group or from their parents even or friends of parents or they'll see stuff online it's like oh well i'm seeing that marijuana is helping this person with like pain or i'm seeing this that marijuana is helping this person with their anxiety or whatever it is and they're not understanding the the full story so what are your thoughts on on all of that because i mean medical marijuana I i think has some benefits correct yeah no doubt the problem is like what is medical marijuana since since there's no standard for it um my argument is that medical marijuana comes in four forms, Drabinol, Marinol, Sativex, and Epidiolex, which are drugs, three of them, that your doc can prescribe to you that are cannabis-based. Like, medicine's not smoked, and it's definitely not um, smoked with who knows how much of everything in it. Like, it's got a dose and a duration. So I, I think that when we talk about the medical side of it, one of the most frustrating things to me is how the truly sick people have been kind of co-opted by this industry. I mean, they, they march kids with seizure disorders up in front of the legislation and they say, look, you're voting against this kid. You're going to let them die, like let them have their medicine. And come on, who in the hell is not going to let them use what, whatever is going to do less of that? But they know that over 90% of the medical customers are there for chronic pain, which is unquantifiable. Like there's no test you can give to, to take it. Like you walk in and be like, oh yeah, I got chronic pain and you get your card. So always look at where that information is coming from. And I would challenge people that for the most part, it's coming from folks who are standing to profit on it. And I can give you one absolute that you can, man, you can take to the bank all day is you do not use high potency THC. So anything above 8%, you do not interact that with any mental health disorders, PTSD, anxiety, depression. No, they don't mix ever period. So for the people that are using cannabis or, or marijuana, then they, they say they, they've helped. Like I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who was in the military for a long time. And he was just like, dude, like, you know, cannabis really helped my PTSD. Like, what do you say to, to people who say stuff like that? Well, the first thing I would say to somebody like that, who's got PTSD is fantastic. If you found something that relieves it, like I'm glad for you, man, because that's a nasty thing. I've got that diagnosis as well. And it's a rough one. He's a grown-up. He's monitoring this himself. It sounds like he's a responsible, reasonable person. What I always say to those folks is, hey, here's what I want you to keep in mind, man. If you ever start feeling paranoid, if you ever start feeling like nervous when you shouldn't be nervous, I want you to think about that. Those folks tend to use, the, the people who are genuinely seeking relief, tend to use a much lower potency, which can help. Where it might be causing a problem. And where I see it causing a problem is a lot of the times. So anytime you're intoxicated, you're not going to be like worried and upset in, in the moment. Intoxication masks that. So what you end up with a lot of the times is people who are just masking symptoms, but not getting down to the root cause of it. Um, but at the same time, you show me a grown up who's thinking about it and being smart and even if I can point to research that would differ it, like, I'm not going to tell you how to live, man. Like, I would never want to get in an argument with that dude. If he says, I feel better, like, okay, 
keep an eye on your usage rates, man. If you, if you, if you find yourself using more and more and more, if you ever find yourself feeling paranoid or anxious when you shouldn't be, it could be the weed, but he's not the target demographic. The target demographic is the 19 year old kid. Who's like, Oh, my back, my back. There's also been this big push or there's been people who talk about it as a healthy form of harm reduction when it comes to getting addicts off of more harsher, more potent substances. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, if given the choice between having a friend using heroin or using marijuana, I would obviously pick marijuana. But the problem that you have is I see, I see that as such an uneducated approach to understanding what addiction is. Like it's basically a normal person saying, why don't you just switch substances? And I mean, by definition, those of us who have a substance use disorder, like, dude, it's not about the substance. It's about the shutting our brain up. It's about the killing the pain. It's about the, like, like the deep things that we have to deal with inside of our own recovery. We're not addicted to one substance. We're addicted to escape. And so whenever people say that, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, that might totally work for the person who isn't an addict. But for somebody who's got a substance use disorder, like, man, we know full well you you can't switch substances with them because the root of addiction, you know, like if one is good, two is better. I might start with just smoking a little weed, but it's going to lead back to where it, it had been. Yeah, I've, I've heard that from from multiple people. Yeah, I mean, logically, it might make sense, right? Because you're like, oh, I'm going to take a more harsh substance and then I'm going to give them a less harsher substance, like wean them off. But psychologically and physiologically, it doesn't make sense because, you know, when you're giving an, an addict an addictive substance, I mean, it's not going to end well, right? No, dude, like addiction completely and totally defies logic. If, if we could reason with addiction, if all it took with, was sound logic with addiction, like nobody would ever need treatment ever. Nobody would go to jail for these things ever because we we just explain the risk reward. Hey, Doug, if you do this again, here's what's going to happen. And you'd say, oh, two plus two equals four. I'm out. But the problem is in the addict's brain is two plus two equals I need to go get high. <laughs> like it just doesn't work that way. Two plus two equals 420. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Like it's not about the logic. And, and so when you have people for whom logic rules the day, thinking that they can apply that same logic to people who are by definition not in a, in, in, in a stable state of mind, it just doesn't work, man. It's, it's, it's foolish and it lacks a fundamental understanding of what addiction is. Let's just say somebody's listening to this and they are hearing what you're saying and they're like, man, I, th I think I might have an unhealthy relationship with marijuana. Like I, I've, I've noticed that it, my life has fallen short in some areas. I've noticed my mental health has been put on the back burner. I've noticed my mood, my overall like well-being has kind of been off lately. And let's just say that they want to um, – somehow come off of it but they're also in the back of their mind they're like well it's still legal and other people that i know can have a healthy relationship with it like how can somebody begin to take the steps to to get help when they're in the, when they're in that situation i think the most important thing is if that's tickling your brain to take it seriously if there's a part of you that's wondering if that's a thing then here's my advice to you like you don't run out the door and 
go to your local ER and say you need help for it. Like the very first thing that you want to do is try and stop. I really strongly encourage people to, to attempt a 60 day because if you can stop for 60 days, you've pretty much proven that you've got decent control over it and just keep an eye on it. Um, if, if you get feeling like that later on down the road, then we address it later down the road. But in those first 60 days, what you're going to realize is that you, you will have to detox, which isn't the same as it was weed when we were getting high. The first two weeks are going to be rough. And um, I encourage people to get very serious about diet and exercise during those two weeks, which I know that's something you do. When, when I work with folks, I don't do it professionally. I just do it as part of my 12-step world. Like I build a diet plan with them and a fitness routine for about two weeks so that they'll be occupied. And then we just got to fill up the time. I really always strongly suggest some attendance in marijuana anonymous meetings, MA, which are in person in every major metropolitan area and virtual easily. So that that's the, that's the place to start. See if you can stop on your own for 60. And if you can't, all right, try again. And if you've given this a shot a couple of times and you're not able to do it on your own, then you might need somebody to walk that path with you. And fortunately, there's there's options for that. So the main thing I'm hearing you say, if somebody's looking to come off of marijuana is to, again, like follow their intuition. If they think they have a problem and odds are there is a problem. And that to understand that the withdrawal is going to be tough, like it's going to be hard. But once you get through it, I think things will become easier and you're, you'll probably develop some some level of self-confidence and self-esteem that you were able to get through the thing that you never thought you could get through, but also emphasizing your health and fitness community, going to marijuana-specific related 12-step programs so that you don't feel like this weird shame and stigma that I know that exists when you go into a, a different in a traditional 12-step meeting because of the nature of how marijuana has been viewed over the years. Anything else that people could do to maybe set themselves up for a healthier recovery process from marijuana? Yeah, don't don't go at it alone. Uh, I, I know I just told you to kind of stop on your own and I, I'm for that, but um, open up to somebody. Like there's got to be, and I'm pretty sure most people have somebody in their life they can trust with this. You, you know, we've, the recovery movement has has gotten so uh, out in the daylight that most people know somebody who's in recovery or just, just somebody who you trust, like don't walk this thing alone and ask somebody for some help with it, especially on the accountability side. Like you want somebody asking you those questions and the, the, the diet and exercise is way bigger than just the standard advice. I mean, THC is fat soluble. And it is, it's more important with this than with anything else I can think of to incorporate good there. Have somebody keeping you accountable on how you're doing there. And then absolutely do not be afraid or ashamed to go to someone and say, I need a hand with this. Because it's that, it, it's that shame that keeps us from achieving most of the time. Like if you got a problem, if, if you have a problem, your life will be better without. So pursue that better life and do it with with some vigor, like find somebody who's going to walk that road with you. 
And if, if you get to a place where you need some professional help, there's professional help out there. Ben, thank you so much for, for your time. Thank you so much for your wisdom and all the insights that you've shared. I think people are going to really enjoy this conversation. Well, I appreciate you doing what you're doing, man. Let's keep talking about this. Absolutely. And um, for y'all listening, I'm sure you're going to, to love this episode. And thanks again for tuning in and we will see you next time.